Well, good morning. My name is Tad Skinner. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, kids up through fifth grade can be dismissed to the Gospel Project. Uh, there are adults out on the patio to take the kids over to the uh, children's building as well as the preschool building. So uh, thanks for uh, those that are caring for our kids and helping them to learn about God even as we are opening up the Bible this morning. So if you would turn to First uh, Samuel, we're in the book of First Samuel, uh, chapter 25, it's under the, uh, and the Bible's under the seats in front of you, it's on page 141. And as you're turning there, perhaps you can relate to this. Your neighbor parks in your parking spot, even after you've politely asked them not to. Your ex-boyfriend lies about you and your relationship on social media. Your husband fails again to do the laundry. Your wife makes you the butt of her joke in front of your coworkers. Some stranger pulls out in front of you, forcing you to slam on your brakes and thereby spilling your coffee. Injustice. Now, it comes in many forms, and inevitably one of our responses all too often is, is to get revenge. We want revenge, or at least we want justice. We want things to be made right. But who brings justice anyway? Today we're going to see how King David learns that God can be trusted above all else to set right all of the wrongs. And we're going to see the source of his teaching come from an unusual place. So it's the summer, and I know that there are guests here, and people have been on vacation, so maybe just to kind of reorient us, uh, towards where we are in the story. We typically take a book of the Bible and we just walk through chapter by chapter. We're in chapter 25. We just saw how, uh, well, let me back up even further. So David has been anointed king of Israel, but Saul is still on the throne and David is on the run. And not just on the run for a couple of days or a couple of weeks. He's been months and months on the run from Saul. David has been nothing but good and kind to Saul, and yet Saul wants nothing better than to pin David to the wall with a spear. So in chapter 24 last week, we saw that David spared the life of King Saul. He had the chance to get the re revenge, he had the chance to bring justice, and yet he chose not to. And this week we're in chapters 25 and 26 of 1 Samuel. And by the end of this, we'll see that David really does truly know who will set right all the wrongs, that he can trust God to do that. So this is a really long passage. It's an important message for us, though, about injustice, about God's sovereignty, and about seeking revenge, whose, whose job that is. So in chapter 25, we'll, we'll find one person who acts like a fool, but is really a king, one person who is really a king, but acts like a fool, and one person, an unlikely character, who plays the role of pointing us towards our true king. So chapter 25 is a pivot point between two encounters that David has with Saul. In chapter 24, we just saw last week where David in the cave, if you remember, when Saul was relieving himself, David had the opportunity to kill Saul and chose not to. In chapter 26, uh, nearly an identical story will happen where David has the opportunity to kill Saul. And then there's this sandwich, if you will. Those are the two buns. In the middle, chapter 25, we've got this sandwich here. Uh, this is the meat, so we're going to focus most of our time on chapter 25. So if you'll read along with me, 1 Samuel 25, beginning in verse 1. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. 
and they buried him in his house at Ramah. So Samuel died, and we, we might think that this is the last we're ever going to hear from Samuel, but uh, just wait till next week. Samuel reappears from the dead. So we've got some kind of weird things going on in these two chapters, but wait till next week. It's even, it gets even more bizarre as we, as we look at that. But let's not miss how important an event this was in David's life. This is Samuel, the one who anointed David as king, and he's just died. So Samuel is perhaps David's spiritual mentor, but also the one who connects David to his kingship, connects David to, to what he has as, as king. So he's just died. So I, I think that might help us understand a little bit about David's actions and his reactions as we go through chapter 25. So continuing on in verse 1. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. So a lot, a lot of sword strapping going on in this passage. Uh, a lot of details, a lot of weird things that culturally, I think if we don't understand what's going on, we're going to misunderstand David's reaction, why he reacted that way to Nabal. We're also going to misunderstand why David even made that request of Nabal in the first place. So a couple things. First, I want us to notice the stark contrast that's made between Nabal and his wife. Nabal's presented in very poor, very pointedly negative terms, while Abigail is lauded for her beauty and for her intelligence. In fact, Nabal's very name literally means fool. So parents, or parents-to-be, don't do that to your kids. I mean, every time that his parents were, were saying, come here, Nabal, they were saying, come here, little fool. Come here, let's go, little fool. So don't do that to your kids. Don't name your kids fool or Nabal. But Nabal is also a Calebite. And we know historically that this was an honorable clan. So we have a dishonorable man in an honorable clan. And further, Calebites were part of the tribe of Judah, and they were considered to be the founders of Bethlehem. So does that ring a bell for anybody? David is also 
of the tribe of Judah, and his hometown is Bethlehem. So these were kinsmen. They were related, Nabal and David. So when David commanded his servants to greet Nabal in verse 5, he certainly believed that Nabal knew him, or at least knew of him. And he believed that Nabal would be pleased to hear from him. But David and Nabal were not just relatives. They were relatives, but they were also business partners as well. So remember that Nabal is a very wealthy man. He had, anybody have 3,000 sheep in here? Nobody? Yeah. You guys are not as wealthy as Nabal. So Nabal had 3,000 sheep, and in an agrarian economy, that is real, tangible wealth. And it's also wealth that is, that's very vulnerable. It's vulnerable to the hazards, to the, the elements of the countryside. So it's important to understand that all that David has asked and done was culturally appropriate for him to ask to join in this feast. Probably been agreed upon in advance. During that time, shepherds needed the help of the community. So it wasn't a lone enterprise. This wasn't just something that, that one family did. The whole community took part in protecting the shepherds and the sheep. And at the time of the sheep shearing, when the sheep owners were pulling in their money, it was expected that they would pay back those who had helped during that year. So as we read, David protected Nabal's shepherds several times over a year. David held up his end of the business partnership very well. And we see that later in verse 16. David's men, we'll get to this in a minute, but David's men are described as a wall of protection around Nabal's men, Nabal's shepherds. So David did his part by protecting Nabal's wealth. But Nabal wouldn't hold up his end of the bargain. David asked for a small favor, and it may not seem like a small favor uh, to provide for 400 men or, or whatever, but we'll see later that Abigail whips up a huge meal just like that. So this was really not that big of a favor uh, that David is asking. Then we see in verse 3 that the description of Nabal's character that we heard earlier it begins to hold true as we, hear date, or as we hear Nabal begin to speak. In verses 10 and 11, Nabal, if you look there, if you look at verses 10 and 11, Nabal makes six first-person references in those few short sentences. So he's, it's all about me, myself, and I for Nabal. And so a request for a small token of appreciation will turn into an enormous problem for David, for all of these people, for Nabal's men. So it was customary for shepherds to give gifts to take care of those who, who helped them in, in taking care of the sheep. So that was the custom. So Nabal was guilty of breaking that custom, but is that all that he was guilty of? Well, he's also guilty of breaking God's law. Deuteronomy 24.15 tells how an owner or a master should treat those who are under, uh, who care for their possessions. So it says, you, you shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. So again, Nabal should have given David his wages for caring for his sheep. He's guilty of breaking God's law by not including him in this feast. And to add insult to injury, Nabal not only turns uh, David's request down, but he also shames David. And this, this is an honor-shame culture. Your reputation and your name are your life in an honor-shame culture. So that's far different than what we experience here in the U.S. in 2019. Our names, our reputations are important, but they're not our very life like they are 
in an honor-shame culture. So sociologists would say that most of the Western world, including the U.S., is a guilt, guilt culture where we are preoccupied with law and punishment. And I think we can probably see that and agree with that. But in an honor-shame culture like David was, your family defines everything. So people are expected and demanded to remain loyal to their community. Your social capital, for instance, your reputation, that's what lifts you up. That's what resolves everything, is, is having social capital. So you hold on to, you honor the social system at any cost. And because personal and family honor is so highly valued, aggression is the answer. So whenever your reputation or your name is, is questioned, then you act aggressively to protect that name. And then finally, in this culture, food conveys honor. So we've seen some of these elements at play already in the story. We're going to see all four of these at play as we walk through the story. So in verse 10, Nabal essentially says, David who? Now, of course, everyone knew who David was. Remember what they said, songs have been sung about David. Everybody would have known who David was, and yet Nabal says, David who? He was a relative of Nabal as well. Certainly Nabal knew who David was, yet Nabal dishonors David. So do you see, are you beginning to see what, 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 kind, of a, what kind of a punk Nabal is and how he's reacting and how he's acting towards David? But even so, David's aggressive reaction may seem a little bit out of place to us as we... As we um, Look at this. He certainly is acting differently than he did in chapter 24. If you remember just one page back in chapter 24, David was talking his men out of an unjust mob hit. And now here he is, the vigilante soldier. He's ready. They're strapping on their swords. They're ready to go. They're going to go, go kill Nabal and whoever else is in their path. And so it appears that the one who talked his men out of this unjust uh, killing of Saul and all of Saul's men one chapter ago, somebody else is going to have to talk David out of that, or else Nabal and all of his men are going to be dead. But what about David and his desire for vengeance? Is it really that bad that David is looking for vengeance? I mean, can't you understand that? Can't you put yourself in David's shoes and, and maybe kind of sympathize with him a little bit? Nabal has this coming. He should be punished for this. Look at, verse, or look at Leviticus chapter 19, 18. It says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So Nabal and David are kinsmen. And clearly, David is commanded to not take revenge against Nabal. So David is acting like a fool, but he's really the king. And how do we explain this? Well, it's no excuse again, but, but David is acting as someone as you would expect someone to act who's in an honor-shame culture. He's reacting in that way. His honor, his reputation have been questioned. And so he begins his march towards Nabal with very bad intentions, seeking revenge. But then watch what happens as we pick back up in verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master. And he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. 
They were a wall to us, both by night and by day. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this, and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. So again, just pointing this out. Nabal's a man that you would be glad to be married to, or that you'd be glad for your daughter to marry. Is he not? Of course not. Uh, Nabal is a worthless man. Even his own men are saying that he's worthless. Nabal is an awful, awful person. It's a very stark contrast to how we see David talked about. And then also it's a very stark contrast to what we see from Abigail beginning here in verse 18. It says, Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young man, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. So let's stop there for just a minute. Let me just point out, uh, David makes an oath to God. We've seen this in 1 Samuel a couple of times. You remember uh, Saul made that foolish oath back in chapter 14, whereby his son Jonathan should have died. So here we see David making an oath uh, in God's name, but it's not a foolish oath. Basically what he's saying is, if I don't kill all of Nabal's men, then God, you do it. So it's actually kind of wise. Um, he's not implicating himself. He's not implicating his men in this oath. He's, he's saying, God, you do this if I can't do it. If I'm, if I'm not going to fulfill this, you make it so. So anyway, back to verse 23. And before I read this, I, I, really important, this passage, this part, I want you to open up your Bibles, have it in front of you, follow along on the screen. This can be really confusing. Uh, Abigail was apparently a, a beautiful woman, an intelligent woman, but for whatever reason, she didn't like to speak in personal pronouns. And that's really not helpful for us here. Uh, so when you see the capital L in Lord, that's, that's God's name. That's Yahweh. So she's talking about God. When you see the lowercase L in Lord, she's talking about David. So capital L, God, lowercase L, David. If we don't know that, we'll get really confused about what she's saying here. So verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my lord, David, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. So just as an aside, let me translate this for you in words that I'm sure no wife in this room has ever said about her husband. She's saying, excuse my husband, he's an idiot. <laughs> so I hope nobody, no wife, has ever said that of their husband in here, but in this case, it's very well deserved. Continuing on, she says, but I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, David, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord God lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt, 
and from saving with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord God will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living and the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord God has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord David shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord God has dealt with my Lord David, then remember your servant. Friends, this is an amazing speech that Abigail gives. If you put yourself in her shoes, she is at great risk in going before David and saying these things. This is, I think, one of the most remarkable woman-initiated encounters in Scripture. It's the longest speech by a woman in the Old Testament. So make no mistake, God and God's Word always calls for women to be treated better than the culture calls for women to be treated. Even today, that's true. Jesus himself interacted with women in kind and God-honoring ways. And he got in trouble with the cultural elites for doing that. God respects women, and we are all, male and female, made in God's image. Yet at this time period, women were to be seen and not heard. And that's what makes Abigail such an unlikely character, such an unlikely person to confront David and to help him in this time. So she's a really wise woman. We look at this. Notice first that she seems perhaps even more concerned for David's character than she does for David or for her own men, or for her own people. That's incredible that she's thinking about David in this moment, instead of just only thinking about herself or only thinking about her people. And look at how she begins. She begins by accepting the blame for David's mistreatment by her husband and her clan. She's saying, I'll take the blame for this. Put it on me. And then look at verse 29. She says, If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. So surely this is no mere coincidence that she's mentioning a sling here. When else in 1 Samuel have we seen that? Goliath, right? Of course, Goliath. And when David was holding that sling in front of Goliath, what did he say? He said a lot of things. But one of the things that he said was the battle belongs to the Lord. You remember that? He's holding a sling and he says to Goliath, the battle belongs to the Lord. She is reminding him that the battle is not his, but the Lord's. The battle against Nabal is not his, but the Lord's. God used a sling to dispatch an enemy far greater than Nabal. Again, like I said, a really wise woman in the way she's approaching and talking with David. So before we read further, 
to see how David responds to this. I want you to think. Think about the last time that you were confronted by somebody. The last time that somebody lovingly confronted you with some sin you were either committing or about to commit. And then I want you to think about, in contrast, how David, the anointed of God, in front of all of his men, responds to a woman confronting him. We see that in verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. So David seems to be genuinely blown away by this. So incredible humility. Again, in front of all of his men, there's this woman that comes and confronts him at this time period, and he responds with such humility. The first words out of his mouth were what? He was blessing God. He declares God to be, to be blessed in verse 32. And in verse 33, he declares Abigail's perceptiveness, her wisdom, to be blessed. And then continuing on in verse 33, he declares Abigail herself to be blessed. So Abigail acted to remind David of his responsibilities, to remind David of the truth of what he was supposed to do according to Scripture. And she saved, not just herself, she saved an entire people. She saved her clan. But what about justice? David's been stopped from going to seek justice or revenge, but what happens to Nabal? Looking at verse 36, we see, And Abigail came to Nabal, And behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead... He said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. So Nabal was holding a banquet like that of a king. Remember what I said earlier? We've got somebody who's acting like a king but is really a fool. He's holding a king's banquet and then the Lord struck Nabal. Nabal didn't die of an unfortunate medical event. He died in divine judgment from God. Look at Deuteronomy 32. It says, Vengeance is mine and recompense. This is God speaking. Vengeance is mine and recompense. For the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. The Lord alone has the right to avenge. And he will do that. We don't need to take matters into our own hands. We need to trust God. Now, friends, it would be really easy, I think, for us to see this is not fair, or this is not right, or this is not just that Nabal would be struck dead like that. 
But remember that Nabal is not an innocent man. The Lord brought justice. And in this case, he did it very swiftly. But not before David learned a lesson. And that lesson is that God can be trusted above all else because he sets right all wrongs. So how did David react to the news of Nabal's death? Well, again, we already read this, but think for a moment. You've all been wronged before. We've all been wronged before. Think about how we react. When somebody who's wronged us gets what they have coming, what's our reaction to that? Think about your reaction, then let's look at David's reaction again in verse 39. He says, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Again, this is the David that we want to emulate. This is the David that, that we know and love. Here he is. He's, he's not surprised that God would do what God does, that God would, would seek uh, justice. So he's not surprised by that, but neither did he exalt in this. He's not saying, I told you so to all of his friends or to you know, Nabal's dead body or whatever. He's, he's exalting God. First words out of his mouth, again, were blessings towards God for judging Nabal and also acknowledging that if it weren't for God sending Abigail into his life, then David would have gone and killed wrongly. God, uh, David, David would have sinned. So he's acknowledging what God has done in his life. If we would only learn from David and how he responded when injustice was done to him, if we would handle things that way. So David was intent on seeking revenge. Let me say that again. The King David, the anointed of God, the least son of Jesse who was exalted over his brothers, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the King David was intent on seeking revenge. Everyone has lapses of faithfulness. Everyone has lapses of judgment. But this was a sinful urge. Everyone needs correction sometimes. David was famous. David was a hero. And Abigail was a nobody. And yet, David needed Abigail to speak into his life. So just a moment of application here. Do you have an Abigail in your life? And are you an Abigail to somebody else? Friends, we, we sin and we act foolishly so many times even after we've prayed about it. We've got some decision, we feel we ought to do this, and it seems like our, our prayers just confirm our feelings. So we should pray, but we should not just pray. If David had acted on his feelings, he would have wiped out an entire clan, just like Saul did in chapter 22 when he killed all the priests at Nob. He would have been no different than Nabal, no different than Saul. God has given his word, and God has given the church as the two primary means that we have for answering prayers. So when we, prayer, when we pray, God's response is often found in the response of our Christian brothers and sisters. So even strong and faithful folks like David need help at times. 
And most often when we make terrible decisions, it's because we do so in isolation from God's word. We do so in isolation from God's people. Far too often when we're at a crossroads of making a decision, we, we decide to go it alone. So in David, we should see ourselves. We should see a man forgetful of God's word and his grace and in need of a community to correct him. So just to prove the point that we need others, I think this, this last few verses is in here for this reason. Verses 39 through 44 says, Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Now David also took Ahanoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Leish, who was of Galim. So let's read the first part of Deuteronomy 17, 17. It says, And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. So David just had this huge victory in humbling himself, being corrected. And then we find that David is imperfectly righteous. He's still not perfect. As we continue reading in First and Second Samuel, we'll see that, that David's family, his family dysfunction, were a major issue. It caused a lot of grief for David. It caused a lot of grief for the people of Israel. If only David had listened to God's word about marrying all these women, if only God had put, or if only someone had, had decided to correct David like Abigail did and not allowed him to go seek after all of these women, then maybe all of these problems and David's family wouldn't have happened. So when we face decisions about who to date, or what major to choose, or whether to talk to your spouse, or your boss, or your friend about some issue that's coming up, we should pray. We should ask God's wisdom and help. But don't only pray. Also go to God's word and apply it to your lives. And then talk to a Christian brother or sister about it. Perhaps they can see what you need to do. Maybe they can see the, the situation more clearly than you do. And when you're wronged, when your neighbor parks in your parking spot, when your ex-girlfriend lies about you in your relationship on social media, when your wife fails again to do the laundry, when your husband makes you the butt of his joke in front of his coworkers. And when some stranger pulls out in front of you and makes you spill your coffee, when you believe that you're treated unfairly, don't seek revenge. Instead, trust God above all else because he is able to make right all of the wrongs. Don't take matters into your own hands because God sees all and God is a just and righteous and perfect king. He may not act as swiftly or as forcefully as he did with Nabal, but we can trust that he is going to, going to respond. Every wrongdoing is punished. It's either punished right then at the moment, it's punished later on, or in my case, as a believer, it was punished at the cross when Jesus took my sin upon himself. And that was an act of righteous judgment and justice. 
So how did David respond to this? We just read through all of chapter 25. We've got chapter 26. We're not going to read much of it, but there's a section of chapter 26 that I think helps us to see that David actually did learn from this experience. So in chapter 26, David once again has the opportunity to kill Saul. Saul comes after David with 3,000 men. He really wants David dead. So Saul and all 3,000 of his men are are camped out, and God puts a very deep sleep on these men. So they're all laying there asleep. And then David and one of his mighty men, uh, we'll call him One Strike, which you'll see in a second, One Strike Abishai. And so David and Abishai are, are there, and they're having a conversation over the sleeping Saul. And so looking at uh, verse 8, all that David has to do is kill Saul. And the throne that is his by right, because he's the anointed, would, would truly be his if he just kills Saul. And then in verse 8, Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. He's very confident in his spear striking ability. But David said to one strike, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And then here, listen to this. And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. So do you see that David took the role of Abigail in this situation as he was talking to Abishai? David had every earthly reason to strike down Saul. By the world standards, that's what he should have done. He should have gotten revenge. Saul had lied to David. He'd lied about David. He'd tried to kill him. Why wouldn't he? He had the right to seek revenge by the world standards. But again, David had learned that God can be trusted above all else to set right all the wrongs. So what about you? I'm sure that you've been wronged this week. Some of you even this morning already have been wronged. Do you think that it's right to seek revenge or to get even? I would ask you, if if your answer to that is yes, then I'd ask you to rethink that. Examine your heart. Examine your motives. Are you taking God's authority as your own? Are you taking the authority that God has given to the governing powers and trying to usurp that and take that power as your own? Please realize that God will bring justice. He is capable of bringing justice. He may do it quickly, like he did with Nabal. He may do it slowly, like he's done with Saul. But God is just. He sees all. We don't have to take matters into our own hands. So my homework for you is to read the rest of 1 Samuel 26. Read the rest of 1 Samuel 26. Also read 1 Samuel 27 and 28 in preparation for next week. That's where we'll be next week. But before we close today, we've had a man acting like a king, but he's really a fool. We've had David acting like a fool, but he's really a king. And we've seen Abigail act in such a way as to point us towards our true king. So how have we seen that? How did Abigail point us towards him? Well, we're currently offering a connection class at 11.15. I would encourage you to stick around after our time of of refreshment here in a minute. Go over to the Christian Challenge Building at 11.15.
we're doing a, a connection class called Jesus, the True and Better. And we're just walking through some Old Testament passages where uh, a person or an event points us towards or is a shadow of Christ, points us towards Christ, how we can see Christ in the Old Testament. So here, Jesus is the true and better Abigail. So what do I mean by that? Well, let's take a look at just a couple of parallels. We're not going to read all of them, or I'm not going to go over all of them, but just a few. Whereas Abigail rode in on a donkey, not knowing her fate, before someone who may or may not have been her enemy. She didn't know what David was going to do. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, knowing that his fate was to die a cruel and brutal death by those who hated him. Whereas Abigail bowed and humbled herself before one who truly deserved her humility and in whom she hoped to find favor, Jesus humbled himself before those who he knew would show him no favor and deserve not his humility. Whereas Abigail was very likely, at that time women were forced to marry, they didn't really have a lot of choice, where Abigail was very likely forced to marry Nabal and take on her people, or his people in that way. Jesus willingly chose to become one of us, and he joyfully and obediently took us as his people. Whereas Abigail's success would mean salvation for her people and for herself. Jesus' success would mean salvation for his people, but a sure and certain, brutal, horrible death for himself. Whereas Abigail was innocent, and yet she took the blame for actions she didn't do, so that her people would be held blameless and would be set free. Jesus was completely, is completely innocent. In him there is no sin. And he took the blame for a people who didn't love him so that the Lord's free gift of salvation might be brought to a multitude of people in every tribe, tongue, and nation who would in turn be held blameless and truly be set free. Those are just a few of the parallels that we see here. It's, it's truly remarkable what Abigail did. Let's not minimize what she did. but Let's worship even more the one who is far greater than Abigail. And if you're not yet a believer in Christ, won't you see what Jesus has done for you? He's given his very life in exchange for yours. It's truly unjust that Jesus would die for a sinner like me. And yet he did. And if you will just confess your sins, turn to him, then he has died for your sins as well. I would love to talk with you further about that. People around you would love to talk with you about that. So stick around after we finish and talk to somebody about this if you're not yet a believer, if you have questions about this. And if you are a believer, let's see in Abigail just a small glimpse of what Jesus has done for us. And let's truly worship him for who he is.